It's time for another holiday and another clip show. When all of the girls, well, everyone but Sophia, have their Valentine's Day dates cancel, they wind up commiserating over ice cream and stories of Valentine's past. Will we learn what happened to these dates? Will the girls ever try going nude again? Will they buy some condoms, condoms, condoms? We'll find out all of that and more in today's episode, Valentine's Day. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing. And laugh just doing our things. No matter the misters that come and go. I hope you know you'll always be my sister. Before we start with the episode, let's have a micro history lesson on Valentine's Day. Though it is seen by many as a made-up, money-grubbing holiday, which it certainly can be at times, the celebration of love actually goes back to the 3rd century. It's believed that a priest in Rome by the name of Valentine found Emperor Claudius II's law against marriage, as a way of keeping young soldiers better focused, to be unjust. Valentine took it upon himself to secretly wed couples who so desired. Claudius had him beheaded. So be sure to think of that the next time you see a Garfield stuffed animal holding a box of Jolly Rancher flavored candy hearts for $18 in the grocery store. We start out by finding Dorothy snacking out of the iconic Valentine's treat of a box of chocolates, whose invention is credited to, according to food52.com, none other than Richard Cadbury, who promoted the first chocolate-filled hearts way back in 1868. Sophia watches on as Dorothy gives each piece the old bite of danger. She thinks she's found a coconut one because the inside is white, but there's a peculiar ring of red around it. Even though Dorothy is the one currently donning a bright red lip, apparently Sophia had some lipstick on earlier when she was doing some taste testing of her own. She too stumbled upon that coconut piece and not being a fan, put it back, which I'm pretty sure is a rule when it comes to these chocolates. Coco, do you remember when we had a roommate and that roommate worked at Seas Chocolates and for Christmas or maybe Valentine's, they got that huge box. I think it had 100 pieces. Do you remember that huge box? It was like three feet long. Oh, yeah. We had it on that big table. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I do remember that. And it took forever. (laughs) It was just so many and they were all filled. So they're like rich or disgusting. It's about 50-50 for a, a chocolate box for oh, whether yeah. or not I can even a, attempt it. I'll be There's honest. There's so many weird ones. That's never that's never the candy I'm going for. I would never go to a store and buy a, a box of chocolates no. to eat. Even I'm when getting... it's like, oh, we're at the mall. I know that's like old school. But 10 years ago when I was at the mall, it was like, oh, seize candy. Let's get a sample. And that's me, the chocoholic. And it's like, eh. I'm more a fan of their sucking candies. Oh, they do have good sucking candies. Yeah. Great yeah. lollipops. Chocolate Great ones. lollipops. <laughs> Chocolate lollipops. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Remember when they, the, the Seas Candies used to just be like standalone stores? 
Yes. Wild. Like not in a mall. What even is a mall? (laughs) (laughs) For the children listening. For some reason, Dorothy is disgusted at the idea of sharing a piece of candy with Sophia. What, Dorothy? Is this such a big deal? You need to contact the nation's doctor, Surgeon General at the time, C. Everett Coop. Simple chronic constipation can be a symptom of a more serious condition. I should know. I'm former Surgeon General C. Everett Coop. Food that is not absorbed becomes waste and enters the pouch like cecum. Who the hell is that? Howard Stern? Sophia says that if Dorothy wants to hear something really disgusting, she can talk about how she breastfed her for two years. That, of course, had me thinking about my gross story with my dad, (laughs) which is a horrible sentence. (laughs) The toothbrush story, which I think I've told. I hate that story. (laughs) I think you have told it. Let's give us a brief recap. Well, it's just so funny that Dorothy's like, ooh, we shared a bite of chocolate, which... I mean, with anyone in my family, like sharing a meal or chocolate, whatever, whatever. you just wouldn't think anything Never. of it. Uh, Even, but, fr- I mean, friends, anyone that yeah, I know. A we drink, can, a, yeah. You can have a bite of my sandwich. Yes. Like with your teeth. Yes. So it was a little weird for how close they are that she felt weird. But yes, it did remind me of the time that I was brushing my teeth in the bathroom. And my dad was like, why are you using that toothbrush? I'm like, because it's mine. And he's like, nope, that's my toothbrush. And that was when we realized that for like a year we were using the same toothbrush. I hate I hate that <laughs> so much. I'm, and I'm angry at both of you for it. <laughs> what could we have done? I don't know. How did you both think it was yours? Whose was it? I'm going to guess my dad probably, I I don't remember the circumstances. So maybe it was like we went to the dentist at the same time because I was younger. Like I was still living with my parents. I mean, not not that I wasn't doing that as I was older. And so maybe we both got new toothbrushes or something. And then he just decided that the one I had claimed was his. I don't know, but I'm sorry. Say that to everyone. I'm sorry to everyone. Thank that you. you had to hear that story. Yeah. <laughs> Things happen. You're living in a shared space. Things happen. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't mean to shame you. I, it's absolutely no, something shamed. that can happen. But I still... No. Did I say I didn't blame you? I do blame you. <laughs> and your father. I tried. And I Rightfully can't. Rightfully so. Can't do it. Dorothy, whose cheeks are starting to match her sweater and lipstick, tells her mother to stop. Her snippy tone is checked by Sophia, who is in a dark floral dress. Hey, don't take it out on me. It's not my fault you got stood up on Valentine's Day. Well, for your information, Dorothy tells her mother, Edgar, her birdbath-selling date, along with his lawyer, were called out of town. Sophia doesn't buy that his birdbath job would require such legal support. Moseying into the room with whatever the opposite of gusto is, is a teal dress wearing rose. Raymond, her date that was supposed to take her to the Valentine's Day dance, is too sick to go. Now Rose is stuck with Dorothy, assuming Dorothy doesn't have a date, just as one could assume that there are seven days in the week or that the sun will rise in the east. Frustrated about everything, Dorothy feeds her mother more chocolate. Doctor's orders be damned. Coming into the kitchen with actual gusto in a bright blue dress is Blanche, and she simply must know if the girls have ever seen anything as beautiful as she. 
As she catches her breath, she was winded by her own beauty, she waits as Rose tries to think of something more beautiful. Before we get to hear what that might be, Blanche has her stop. It was rhetorical. It's now Blanche learns neither Rose nor Dorothy have a date. And on Valentine's Day... Note to the Blanches of the world. For some people, it's more than fine to not have a date. When you react like she did, with shock or pity, you're just telling the world how you would feel in that scenario. After giving her condolences and a pouty, don't be upset, keep your spirits up, the phone rings. It's Steve, Blanche's date. He's clearly informing her that he won't be making it to their date, and she reacts with the same poise and confidence she told the girls to have by telling Steve that she took all day to get ready, that she will scratch his eyes out, and that she hates him, hates him, hates him, and he should drop dead. You, sir, are a dirtbag! Even though she's just a few feet from Blanche, Rose didn't quite pick up on what just went down. When she asks what's wrong, she gets a defiant, Nothing! Nearly choking on her tears and anger, Blanche tries to leave, pretending that she was still going out, but Dorothy knows better and stops her. She was dumped, wasn't she? She was. Rose can't believe how Dorothy knew that and wants to know the trick. Brushing her off, Dorothy quips that she's clairvoyant or has the ability to see into the future. Only Rose mishears it or maybe doesn't know that word and thinks she's talking about buoyant or the ability to float in water. An ability, like so many others, she just doesn't have. I'm kind of psychic. I have a bit sense. It's like I have ESPN or something. My breasts can always tell when it's going to rain. That's amazing. Well, they can tell when it's raining. Most people are buoyant to some degree, unless they are built like my mother, who for some reason is like Rose and literally sinks. To this day, in her mid-60s, she needs floaties. She can't swim, she just can't float. Buoyancy between races has been used as a stereotype, especially towards black people. However, a study in 1997 of 26 nearly identically built men, 13 being black and 13 white, showed that there were hardly measurable differences between their buoyancies. Differences that were present were due to the white males having a little bit more body fat. The other reason the inaccurate stereotype of black people being unable to swim has perpetuated for so long was because public swimming pools were often segregated or not built in areas people of color would have had access. Dorothy won't have the opportunity to explain her superpower because Blanche is too busy throwing a fit about having to be stuck at home on Valentine's Day with the girls. Wise Sophia reminds her, though, worse things can happen on this holiday. Rose assumes this story will be about a time Sophia didn't have a date on Valentine's Day, which is a ridiculous thought. Why, until just a few years ago, Sophia couldn't keep the old guys out of her hair, that she had kept vibrant with the hair dye Blue Rinse, which can be used to aid in reducing yellowness in gray hair. Sophia has a worse story to tell. It's about the time, time, time. Back in 1929, Sal, Sophia, and her father were taking a road trip across the country. Cut to the inside of an old-timey garage where they've taken their car, which was fine in Brooklyn but started having issues as they went through Chicago. Cars were still fairly new then, but boy did this garage have the motif down. Except, according to one astute viewer, a grill on the wall is actually from a car from the 1930s, so perhaps the mechanic also made time machines? 
Back again to play our favorite stout marinara-covered lover is Sid Melton. He's pushed the car into the garage while Sophia guided the wheel and her father sat grumpily in the back seat. The family's genes are thick with this group. In fact, Sophia's father looks an awful lot like Uncle Angelo, perhaps because they were both portrayed by Bill Dana. Popping the hood, Sal is fumbling around, but Sophia knows he doesn't know anything about cars. If he's wanting to impress her, he needs to start using silverware to eat a spaghetti instead of bread. Uncle Ange, I mean Pops, thinks that the car has run out of fuel. This comment elicits a perfect example of just how well the men don't get along. Sal asks who he was asking. Pop says he wasn't talking to him. He was talking to his daughter because Sal is dead to him. Sal then pulls out the big guns, reminding Pops that he's the one, existing in his mind or not, that's driving him from Brooklyn to California. Sophia wants them to both shut up so they can get the car fixed and get back on the roads of Chicago in February in a convertible. But hey, it's not Sal's fault they ended up so far north. He lost the map. This seems like a very dangerous situation, and I'm honestly surprised daily that humans survive. Pops could have been of more assistance from the start. He's been telling Sophia from day one where Salvador was going. Nowhere. She married herself a no-good bum. Bum. The men's hatred for each other is interrupted by Sophia, who asks a passing mechanic for assistance. John Harnagel is playing said mechanic. He also appeared in Facts of Life, Murder, She Wrote, My Blue Heaven, Matlock, Picket Fences, Melrose Place, Dr. Quinn, Allie McBeal, X-Files, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Star Trek Enterprise, Medium, Desperate Housewives, and of course, La La. John would love to be of help, except he wouldn't, because he's not only on his break, but there is a line of cars ahead of theirs. For Pops, the news of being in Chicago, land of average 34 degree, 37 inches of snow for the winter, sounds about as enticing as living in the Italian land known as Pompeii in October, when it is believed the utterly destructive volcano erupted as far back as 79 AD. Sal brokers a deal to borrow the mechanic's tools through his lunch for $2, which would be $36 today. This is shocking to Sophia, who knows that Sal's tool usability hasn't surpassed the bottle opener stage. He doesn't have an answer, just says he'll get them out of there in no time, which is how long he told Sophia they'd be living in their crappy apartment 12 years ago. The father-daughter duo get into a back and forth about Sal. Sophia defending him, Pop's confused as to why she's even with him. She gets it. She knows that he's a little dim, he's broke, he's not very good looking, but she isn't concerned about those things because she loves him for unexplainable reasons. Those reasons won't be dissected because Pop has to hit the head. They both get out of the car, Sophia to check on Sal's progress, Pop's to find a loo or wall. In terms of progress, there isn't much to report on, reminding Sophia how much of a bajakaloo per Sal is. Sophia may love him, but that love isn't helping relieve her tiredness, chill, or hunger. Her hunger, though, Sal can help with. Inside the car is a heart-shaped box of chocolates. They've been on the road for three days, and it's now the 14th, Valentine's Day. This, this is one of those small things Sophia was telling her dad about. Maybe Sal can't fix the car, but he can consider her feelings three days before a holiday and take care of getting her a gift and hiding it away. 
the Petrillo's kiss, which is interrupted by gunfire and Papa running past them, saying that they needed to get out of there. Oh, that sound? It was machine gunfire. Pop says he was going through the building to find a restroom when he stumbled upon a group of guys lined up against a wall. Pop assumed that wall was the replacement toilet. While waiting for his turn, he was told by a man holding a machine gun to get out of there. As soon as he left, rat-a-tat-tat, the men on the wall fell as quick as flies on Pop's apparently stinky sister Regina. (laughs) This is a hard-to-believe story for Sophia. Her dad has seen some stuff back in Sicily. Maybe he was just having a flashback. Before she can completely gaslight him, another round of shots ring out. All three hopped into the car and decided to check on another garage. Sal doesn't need the car to be running. He's running and is so pumped with adrenaline that he'll just push the dang thing. This story was a reference to the real event, which we talked about in even more detail in episode 22 from season three, Rose's Big Adventure. You may recall that it was on Valentine's Day 1929 in Chicago when members of the Irish Northside gang were bombarded by hitmen disguised as police officers. Seven men were lined up on a wall and shot. It's suspected Al Capone, not Rocco, may have been involved. Being dumped, sharing chocolate, and having to deal with Valentine's Day with these girls has Dorothy cranky, and she will not believe her mother was present at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Sophia agrees, because she wasn't at the famous SVDM. She was at one of them. And what she can tell you is that Chicago, back then, was about two things. Well, she can't tell you what those two things were, though. She's not writer, historian, broadcaster, and actor Louis Studs Turkle. Besides winning the Pulitzer for his 1985 The Good War, he famously presented the oral histories of average American citizens and had a daily one-hour radio show in Chicago for 45 frickin' years. So I asked survivors of the Depression, what was it like to live at that time? What she describes, just the feeling of hunger and the fear what tomorrow will bring. Hunger. And now we have another Depression which we euphemistically call a recession. Now, we have a depression. It is that to millions of industrial workers, to millions of family farmers losing their farms. And the ghost of that depression still rides with us. Studs. Studs Turkle here. That's cool. Probably doesn't, well, I don't know. Did you, do they... Probably doesn't sound like a Studs. Or do, yeah, maybe doesn't think of, doesn't look like what you maybe think when you think of a stud. Yeah. I think of Mark DiCarlo. Who's that? The host of studs. Not to be confused with the host of studs, Mark DiCarlo. Guess what? There's a new show on Fox outrageous enough to call itself um, studs. What is it, a cop show? Not quite. Three men and a baby without the baby. (laughs) You see, we take two studly guys. Studly. Do they still use that? And three happening women. I'm excited about it. Send them on separate dates, and then we bring them here on TV to talk about it. Definitely watch it. Studs. It's outrageous fun, and you will never think of studs the same way again. Studs. (laughs) Premieres 7 o'clock, March 11th on Fox 11. I love studs. Blanche is unfazed by Sophia's story and asks that they do something more uplifting than just sitting around bitching and snacking on candies. Rose comes up with the brilliant idea of eating ice cream. Blanche would get it, but she's just too weak from being so disappointed. Like a little sister, Rose says that she too is disappointed. 
Like a brattier sister, Blanche turns to Dorothy, who forces Rose to go get the treat. This has Rose confused why they are both being bitchy toward her. Giving two good reasons, Dorothy says it's because they're cranky and they can't even look back on last year's Valentine's Day as a fond memory because of what Rose did. Bringing that up shocks Rose. Promises were made last year that they would never again speak of. Blanche is surprised Sophia doesn't remember what her daughter was doing a year ago, but she shouldn't be. Heck, she's lucky that every day Sophia isn't coming in with her panties on the outside of her dresses, and that when it does happen, it's only sometimes. It shouldn't be so surprising the girls don't have dates this year. They didn't worry about it last year. Instead, electing to take a ladies' weekend away in the mountains. 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 Holy moly, we're in a new location. Rose and a peplum skirt duo whose color falls between burgundy and her namesake. Blanche in pink pants and a literal namesake cover of black and pink roses. And Dorothy in her teal turtleneck and wrap and tan skirt have all arrived at the lodge. The decor and coziness is pleasing to all and they can't wait to get to their room. Just breathing the mountain air has Blanche Harney as she loved making love on a mountain something Dorothy never did, but she did get close when she hooked up with a larger man who went by the name Old Smokey. Approaching the desk, Rose rings the bell, and the desk clerk is hung. I mean, he's in the new... He's bare... Ah, he... His... His Klegiskin sprinkers is showing. As one would expect the girls to react when greeted by a naked hotel employee, Dorothy gives a whoa and turns away. Blanche's eyes and mouth are agape, and Rose might as well be asking if he's a priest. She is so shaken. When the ball boy, I uh, mean bell ball, the ball hop, when the bell hopping boy with bags shows up behind Blanche, he asks her where she'd like him to put it. The it as in luggage, not his package. She hopes it's actually the latter and all but offers to store his baggage in her undercarriage. After he buys her a drink, of course. Dorothy reels Blanche back to reality with a Blanche. She again tries to answer the bagman by telling him to hold on to it and then them before getting specific and saying luggage with an adorable giggle. Always inquisitive Rose simply must know where the man keeps his tip money. The question is also interrupted by Dorothy, who is now completely flustered by the entire situation. The porter is realizing there has been a miscommunication. Playing him is Michael Blue. He worked only in the 80s, appearing in Taking Care of Business, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Murder, She Wrote, and nine other roles. Sadly, there isn't a specific cast listing for the bellhop. Perhaps he was a local nude model. Studs. Michael the porter informs the ladies that their resort is clothing optional, something that should have been noticed when the Studs. reservation was made, but then again... Rose was the one making it. This information seems like it could maybe be missed nowadays if a website wasn't clear, but these were phone call days. Rose is so embarrassed she doesn't want to be looked at as the responsible party, or in general. Coco. Hello, ma'am. How can I help you today? Have you ever attended any nudist anything, indoors or outdoors? You mean besides the hotel that I'm managing right now in the nude? <laughs> yes. Huck, yes. No. Yes, besides that. No. Nothing. Nudist? Yeah. No. I've, uh, no. Never. I, I would. 
not do it myself, but I would definitely, I'm fine. I would be fine, of course, fine being at a beach like or a place you like that. sounds like it. Let me see it. No. <laughs> uh, no, I've never done that. I don't believe I ever would, but I support that and I'd be fine being so if you went, it. I, I, nudity for me, I, I love it. Yeah. But I'm not a weirdo about it at all. It's just no. like, that's cool. I like seeing, I just, I do. I appreciate naked people. That's true. I love nudity. So would you, if you and I went to Rooster Rock, which is our local down the street clothing optional beach, if we were to go there, would you participate? No. <gasps> wow. Those, my genitals are only for your, you and God to see. Okay. <laughs> to examine. <laughs> and nothing else. All right. Yeah, I just don't, I don't need my crotch out there. <laughs> you don't need sand in your bum. I just don't want that. that that's like, well, we were just, well, we were talking about this earlier. Is that like, you're like a nudist and you're like running around to your other nudist friends, I don't know, cabana or whatever. <laughs> and you got to like bring a little butt towel. A little bum towel. You got to sit down on a towel all the time because you're not wearing clothes. <laughs> because we don't want to mess up each other's furniture, if you know what I mean. So for that reason, I'm out. Also, <laughs> seriously, I just like having pockets. Yeah. I got to have at least two pockets. That's fair. I've hey never man, had that you instinct. Don't have to. Oh, no, I've just never had that instinct to be like, <laughs> I wish I was on this beach, but with my b out and yeah. my ding dong. Yeah. Delicious. Oh. Ding dong delicious. <laughs> I was thinking of a hostess ding dong. Yeah, you were. <laughs> <laughs> Hungy. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> Dorothy asks to leave because this is not her bag, baby. Too bad. The last shuttle down this mystery mountain just left, so they're stuck overnight. Giving up, Dorothy asks Bagman to point the way to their room. Blanche's eyes follow his pointer, and I don't mean finger. He is happy to show them that their room is upstairs. Wink, wink. What a naughty joke. Getting up to their room, which is decorated in what one might call Lizzie Borden's Victorian home but without the murder, Dorothy is pissed. They have to wait 10 hours for the bus, and they're surrounded by nudies. Rose is apologetic and tries to explain the brochure wasn't clear about this whole dress code thing. But when Dorothy holds such a brochure and the front says, fun in the buff, it is hard to believe that detail was missed. She goes on to read all of the fun amenities at the resort that are complemented by how the sun beats down on your fanny, which sounds a little sunburningly aggressive. I don't think I want the sun beating down on my fanny. Another reason I would not want to do that. Yeah, the sunburns. It would be instantaneous. That has, it's all never been in the sun. Yeah. Rose's protests are met with Dorothy's sarcastic recommendation that she reach out to famed writer who began working with the Black Panthers but went full conservative, David Horowitz. He is an outspoken writer who was pals with Reagan and probably was too busy at the time to deal with Rose and the Nakey New News. Distracting her from responsibility, Rose shares how she can't believe how people can be comfortable with all of their bits out. Dorothy feels the same. Blanche says that she agrees, but she's also waving out the window at the naked men running around, and actions speak louder than words. Boy, Dorothy is really cranky. She not only doesn't want to talk about the nudity, she doesn't even want Blanche enjoying the view. 
Inviting them to join her at the window, Blanche wants them to see the guy who's playing volleyball. Dorothy's tantrum comes to an end when she sees the ball and net that that guy is playing with. Blanche is starting to realize how fun it all seems. And after just a very brief moment of viewing the guests, Dorothy feels totally comfortable with the nudity. With that slight nudge, Blanche and Dorothy have decided they should take full advantage of the situation and join in on the buffery. Rose isn't as sure, but she is hungry. So as long as they can add grabbing a bite to the adventure, she's in. And right there, the girls are dropping trowel. Sharing a bedsheet to cover themselves, the ladies are coming down the stairs, clearly without clothes on. As a clever way to keep the three together and covered, a huge display of three hearts reading Valentine's Day Dinner is now in the lobby, and they are quick to get behind it and use the hearts as shields. Getting closer to where others might see them, Rose, bringing up the caboose, and boy is she, has started to second-guess her decision. To comfort her friend, Blanche tells her that there are probably people there with bodies just as ugly as hers and Dorothy's. Meanwhile, Blanche is about to drop that heart so she could get into a room of naked men. I guess this was the 80s, so maybe it was harder to find, but it's nearly impossible to believe Blanche had never been to this kind of establishment before, or that she wasn't going like every weekend. Finding her courage, Rose pulls the trigger. As they still stand behind the hearts, Rose and Blanche have nothing on but their kitten heels, and you know B took the opportunity to be shoeless. In a non-perv way, always a good way to start a sentence, it is really kind of fun to see the girls' legs and their shoulders. And I know Coco, as an admirer of the human form, you know, seeing these older gals, they came up through television during the you-can't-wear-pants era, and then here they are on national television showing quite a lot of skin and implying nudity, which was really cool. Yeah, it was a nice little, it was a nice little thrill. Yeah, to see that I it, like I, I gasped a bit when it happened, and it was it was just nice to see their sh their shoulders and their legs. Yeah, and I I always find I think it's so fun that B always is uh, not wearing shoes when she can. Yeah, <laughs> and great imagery. I mean, those are like I'm sure those are some images that people use for like oh, Valentine's Day cards. The hearts are merchandise. <laughs> yeah, that was that was rad. The girls' voices are shaking. They're running out of breath. But Dorothy has a thought. How are they going to eat with heart handles in their hands? They have no choice but to be brave, dump the hearts, and go into dinner with their heads held high and their titties hanging low. Our natural, baby. That's how I like them. Swing low, sweet chariots. Going into the restaurant, they're still covered by a small wall that is just low enough for them to catch a glimpse of everyone eating and how they are all fully dressed. With gasps and looks of horror that are awfully judgmental for being a room full of nudists, the girls are busted. Then the maitre d' catches a glimpse and calls out across the restaurant. The resort may be nude, but dinner never is. And in the case of the girls, everyone would like it if they were dressed for all the meals. Boo on you, Mr. Maitre d'. Playing the maitre mean is Wayne C. Dvorak. He was also in the Mary Tyler Moore show, Hill Street Blues, Fame, Chips, Empty Nest, Murder, She Wrote, The Nanny, Seinfeld, Coach, Everybody Loves Raymond, Clueless, TV show. Most amazingly, he appeared in our favorite, Coco, Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. 
In it, he played, like in this episode, a maitre d'. And the name of the segment? Charlie. Uh, Mr. Holman, how'd you get the stains out of your suit? Old Charlie got the stains out of my suit, and I was just coming by to say thank you to him. Old Charlie, the men's room attendant? Mm-hmm. That's impossible. Oh, yeah, why is that? Charlie died six months ago. Horrified after being publicly bullied while in the nude, the girls retreat. Back at the table, Blanche, the most disappointed of all, is now asking aloud why they are disappointed. So what? It's Valentine's Day and we don't have dates. So Rose is like, well, yeah. Blanche is happy to hear this because it has confirmed her depression and given her an excuse to have more ice cream. Rose then declares the first Valentine's Day, long before Parks and Rec did. She thinks they should still celebrate and all go out to dinner together. It's not like things are bad. They just don't have dates. Sophia is invited, but she has a date. Dorothy doesn't believe it. Sophia's being colorful again just to upset them. She goes the Marsha Brady route and starts by asking Sophia her date's name. Sophia goes the Jan Brady route and says she can't tell, which I guess is a step above George Glass. The specific questions about him and the date plans continue, as do the vague answers. Sure, Jan. When she is still not believed, Sophia caves. Okay, his name is Julio Iglesias, as in the singer. Without a word to her mother, Dorothy tells Rose to reserve a table for four, because getting a table last minute on Valentine's night in Miami is easy peasy. Also, should we really be relying on Rose to make reservations? Didn't we learn that lesson in the last story? Hopes are that once Sophia gets hangry, she'll start to tell the truth. But her date is with Julio. He had come by the senior center to visit a family member. The two of them hit it off, and bada-bing, bada-boom, they've got a date. Her cute story is met with pity from Blanche, who was asked by Rose why it should even matter if they have dates or not. Because it's romantic. For Blanche specifically, it's the anniversary of when George proposed. Rose, the queen of storytelling, huffs that she will have to hear the proposal story again. Well, first of all, Blanche wasn't going to tell that story, and secondly, Rose doesn't have a date, so what does it matter if she wastes time with a story? A story. A story. Going back to the bar where she met John Quinn and hashed things out with her brother Clayton, Blanche is there on Valentine's Day, as it is the location of the big proposal. I know it's a show, but come on. Blanche would not stand for a generic bar proposal on Valentine's. Why would they have gone to Miami instead of something romantic in Georgia? I just don't buy it. As she sits by herself, Blanche is given two champagne glasses and a bottle. The waiter pours her glass but leaves the other. She asks him to fill it as it will be just her. Playing the waiter is Julian Dyer. He appeared in a short film in 2022, but before that... The Girls was his last gig. Previously, he had worked in Knott's Landing, Simon & Simon, St. Elsewhere, Remington Steel, Hill Street Blues, Falcon Crest, and T.J. Hooker. Waiter Julian jokes with Blanche that it's a day of love, not St. Patrick's Day for drinking. But she won't be drinking both. The second glass is symbolic. Every year after the proposal, she and George went to that bar to celebrate Valentine's Day and each other, even though George is gone, she has decided to carry on the tradition. At the bar is a young man who turns around after hearing Blanche's story. 
He doesn't get out much as he's impressed by how romantic the idea of champagne with a proposal is. Wow, you know, things as basic as chocolates and flowers, but okay. Playing the man is Tom Isabel, who is credited as a young man. He was a bit of a side character king in the 80s and 90s, appearing in Clear and Present Danger, True Lies, Coach, Murder, She Wrote, The Commish, Designing Women, Jake and the Fat Man, Columbo, Empty Nest, The Abyss, Family Ties, My Sister Sam, Kate, Nally, and Lala. The man is nervous and Blanche catches on that he too is planning a Valentine's proposal. This is delightful news for Blanche who wants to help. She'll tell him exactly what George did, which means that back in the kitchen, she is in fact telling the proposal story, but in a roundabout way. The guy is hesitant, but Blanche persists. Their ages may be different, but love is love. So she wants to help. They sit at the table and she begins. They were sitting at that exact table, George grabbed her hands and started to compliment her and tell her how much he loved her. Then he asked if she would be his wife. She cried and said yes. The guy is inspired and his nerves are calmer. Blanche is right. Love is love and he will propose. Just then, Victor walks in. The guy stands and yells for him to get a table because he needs to talk to him. With a goofy thumbs up, he's off to get engaged leaving Blanche wondering if maybe things do change. But maybe not, because when they're back at the table, Rose is wondering if Blanche ever got to see the girlfriend slash fiancé. She didn't catch on that Victor was the one getting proposed to. This was such a fantastic early example of love is love. Needing to get ready for her date, Sophia tries to, well, Dorothy still doesn't believe her. Sophia doesn't argue back. She just agrees that, yeah, she doesn't really need to do much to get ready. She's in her 80s. She just needs to wait until the last second before they leave to go to the bathroom. Giddy with a memory, Blanche laughs that Sophia should always be ready. She's not laughing about a date, but about the time the three girls were going to the store before heading on a cruise with their latest bows. 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 What an iconic scene we have here. And I just have to say that as much as I love this show for so many reasons, it's kind of just a fun hobby. It's lighthearted. I get to watch my favorite TV show and then dissect it. And I get to spend all this time out here with Coco and we laugh through everything. But one of the very best parts is a clip like this one, which I have seen a hundred times and basically have memorized to be sitting with Coco as he watches it for the very first time was a thrill. It's a great scene, and it made me laugh out loud very loudly, annoyingly loud. <laughs> Not even annoyingly. <laughs> um, at the the checker at the at the uh, pharmacy there. Yeah. His first line to, with, uh, with, <laughs> with Dorothy is one of the best. Yes. I loved that. I, I loved that so much. It was very good. Yeah. yeah really it's, funny. It's a pleasure to get to experience <laughs> that with you. Yeah. Everything about that actor, too, is just real good. We have, you haven't gotten him yet. I haven't you? yet, but uh, I'm about to. I just loved his look and his comb over oh, yeah. and his mustache and the way his delivery is just great. He's seen it all at that check stand. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, unfazed. God, that was good. That was very funny. Oh, man. And then the, yeah, Rose's condoms that she picks. So good. My God. But we'll get to that in a minute. 
but they're black. <laughs> All right, let's get into this iconic scene, starting with the clothes. Dorothy has her windbreaker with orange and pink and blue, but also a taupe sweater collar. Rose has a light seafoam pantsuit covered with the muted colors of Dorothy's coat and mandalas. And Blanche has gone full weekend dad in jeans, a purple polo top, and forest green jacket. Stocking up on supplies for their trip, they had chapstick, sunscreen, and romantic novels. They have almost everything. Jeff, Rich, and Randy are expecting things on this trip, so the girls might need protection. Rose is, of course, confused, so Dorothy specifies that they could get protection from the 19th century-founded security and detective agency based in Chicago, the Pinkertons. Pointing to the last-minute purchase rack near the counter, Rose wonders how a crunch candy bar, an enema bag, or denture grip could protect them. Who the hell set up the bizarre selection of this shelf? In one of the best moments in B. Arthur's career, she explodes with frustration. Condoms, Rose! Condoms! 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 After her outburst, the clerk at the counter asks her to chill out. Calm down, lady. You just get out of prison? Playing the clerk is famous comedian Pat McCormick. He was a stand-up and actor, but he was best known for his gag writing. After dropping out of law school, he started writing comedy. His career would see him working with or writing for Jack Parr, Merv Griffin, Red Skelton, Danny Kaye, Lucy, Bette Midler, Don Rickles, and more. He wrote for Johnny Carson for 12 years and also wrote for Get Smart and Candid Camera. In addition to all that, he appeared in Grace Under Fire, Laverne and Shirley, Sanford and Son, The Shaggy DA, and Smokey and the Bandit. What are your plans for tomorrow? Well, tomorrow I'm having my own Thanksgiving dinner. Well, what will you, a turkey, eat, for, eat on Thanksgiving? A butterball farmer. <laughs> are, uh, are they any good? Well, they're a little chewy, but I like their giblets. I suppose you would. <laughs> well, it's really a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Turkey. Now, I know your type. You act friendly now, but tomorrow you're probably going to bite into a turkey leg. Oh, come on. Actually, I prefer breasts. I've heard that. Never mind. <laughs> Pulling Dorothy to the side, Blanche asks if they are on board with the purchase. Rose and Dorothy are both a little embarrassed, but Blanche the expert promises them they are at a place of business and they are just adults making an adult purchase. With a confident strut, Blanche grabs a box of rubbers and places them on the counter. With quieter confidence, Dorothy grabs a box of her own. And with the same sly skills she's exhibited at auctions, Rose grabs one for herself. As Clerk Pat begins to bag up everything, there's one holdup. The condoms, of course, they don't have prices on them. Now, I did have this happen to me one time with a pregnancy test. <laughs> they didn't have to, like, call a thing, but it was it was not great. Like, I went over to the, I'm like, oh, I'll just, I've got a little, I, I've got another item, you know, the fake item, a bag of chips, and I'll hide it behind it. And then scanned it, and of course, the self-checkout didn't work, so the lady had to come over and, like, boopy pop and do all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, God, please. Have you ever had an embarrassing grocery store moment? No, I just decided to, I used to do like self-checkout for stuff like that. If there mm -hmm. was a, like, a, you know, a slightly embarrassing item, I just go for it. Yeah, they've seen they've it all. They've seen it all and they really don't care. And you think they're going to remember? No. You're so important. They're going to, if they do remember, they'll get home from work and be like, Johnny, you won't believe the grouping of groceries this guy had. It was crazy, but that's it. I'm fine being an amusing story for someone as long <laughs> yeah. as I don't get hurt in the story. That's right. <laughs> I'm fine with this. Please <laughs> laugh at me. 
So Pat gets on the store's intercom and starts asking Joe about the boxes of condoms, bringing the store to a halt. Joe and Pat then start going into detail about the purchases. There are three boxes of King George condoms. Two are lambskin, and Rose got the ultra-sensitive in black. The girls are frozen except for the horror and embarrassment that keeps rolling across their faces. For Blanche and Dorothy, it'll cost them $12.95. For Rose's preference, it'll be $13.95. While Dorothy and Rose are nearly folding into themselves with embarrassment, Blanche saves the day. Grabbing the intercom herself, Blanche gives one of the best speeches of all time. She calls out the judgmental customers for looking at them as they are. So what? They are independent, healthy, vibrant women who are going on a sexy trip with their boyfriends and they're going to use condoms. Big whoop. They will proudly walk out of the store condoms in hand, knowing that they are not only taking care of their own bodies, but they are protecting others in the process. A poignant speech for the AIDS crisis era. And as Coco said, thank goodness that intercom had 90 feet of wire so she could really make her way across the entire store to make her statement. Yeah, things like that must happen frequently at that pharmacy or market. <laughs> we got to get a longer cord. People have things to say. They keep ripping it out of the out of the <laughs> unit over there, and then it, we got to replace the whole thing. Just let them do it. <laughs> and now we have people farting into Walmart PAs. That's right. That's the progression, and I hope you're all happy. I am. That's one of my favorite videos on the internet is someone farting into a PA system. And it sounds like this. Attention Walmart shoppers. Looking for support, Blanche asked Dorothy for her two cents but she's not as brave and quickly denounces Blanche while claiming she's just buying the Jimmy hats for her brothers. Dorothy runs out the door, followed quickly by Rose and eventually by an annoyed Blanche. Back to the kitchen, Dorothy had never been so embarrassed. I guess that was worse than the whole being nude at dinner thing. Optimistic Rose tries to remind them how nice that weekend was, though. Sure, it was nice, but they never got around to needing those condoms except for Rose, who turned them into water balloons, targeting people playing limbo. And like Coco said, those things aren't known for breaking easily. That's actually like the antithesis of their purpose. So she probably did some serious damage. The force of a full... A full condom. And a condom, if you were to make a water balloon, it would be huge. It would just be... From who knows how far away, you'd just be getting slapped with like... She probably broke someone's neck. A 10-pound water dick. That's what they call me. That's irresponsible. Maybe if she popped a hole in him, like I always do, um, (laughs) they would have exploded. You pop the hole, it starts to go, and then you throw it at the person. Nine months later, you have a baby. (laughs) When the doorbell rings, Sophia is still trying to convince the girls that it's her date, Julio Iglesias. But when she opens the door, she reveals Edgar, Steve, and Raymond. Knowing she couldn't trust whoever these three one-time date guys are to be romantic, Sophia arranged this surprise. Surprise! How about you feel totally bummed out for a few hours, totally ruin your mood, fill your belly with ice cream and other treats, adjust to the idea of just a cozy night in, only to have the guys show up last minute? Yay! 
playing Edgar is Michael J. London. He was in The Six Million Dollar Man, Beretta, Gemini Man, Police Story, Rockford Files, Bionic Woman, Greatest American Hero, Knight Rider, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Falcon Crest ER, and like several other guys who have made appearances, Michael was in season two of I Think You Should Leave. Joe Faust is playing Raymond, who was also in Murder, She Wrote, A-Team, Jake and the Fat Man, Falcon Crest, Dallas Columbo in the Heat of the Night, and a plethora of TV movies. Finally, there's John Rice playing Steve. He has six acting credits, The Distinguished Gentleman, The Forbidden Dance, Falcon Crest, Cheers, and Who's the Boss? Sophia arranged all of this to save the girls from a night of crappy beer and cheesy sitcoms like The Love Boat. So the girls are out the door to get in a limo. Ooh, I spy flesh boots on Dorothy. New boot goofing. The girls ask Sophia if she wants to join, but she reminds them she has a date. As soon as they leave, she scampers into the kitchen, almost puts the ice cream back in the freezer before she hears a knock at the back door or side door or garage door. Hearing only a beautiful voice from around the corner, a man claiming to be Julio is there and he has chosen that door to be conspicuous. Sophia hates that he's hiding away since the whole point of going out with the world's most successful Spanish singer and biggest selling artist in history, Julio Iglesias, is to be seen. Fun fact, he got his big break at the 1970 Eurovision competition. He is best known for his singing and for his spawn, Enrique. Tu nombre, Then, from around the corner, is the real Julio. If you watch very carefully, Sofia is guiding him. She goes, wait, wait, wait. Well, not Sofia, but Estelle. While holding up a finger before giving him the cue of, now. Like, you can actually hear her go, now. The couple is going out to dinner at a deli, but she would really like him to serenade her with his song, Begin the Begin. The pair start singing and laughing as they leave for their Valentine's Day dinner. Coco. I love a clip show and I love a sitcom guest star. Oh, yeah. So it was great. And yeah, when last week you told me that the upcoming episode was going to be a clip show of clips we that have never been on the show. But they made it for that episode. That's my favorite. I just yeah. love that so much. And I, yeah, I just love the the device of everyone sitting around somewhere mm-hmm. being like, well, we're stuck. So we might as well remember this thing. And let me just say real quick. They're remembering a whole lot of Valentine's Days. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how long they've all lived together, but Yeah, they went through several of of theirs in the in the handful of years they've been together for Valentine's Day. They've really done it up. I appreciated the reference to the St. Valentine's Day massacre, but I thought that was sometimes they kind of shoehorn in yeah, jokes. Yeah, or, or it's a long walk to get to the... Yeah, kind yeah. of shaggy dog style yeah. jokes. And a lot of those are, are with her, but usually they, they pay off pretty well. I thought yeah. that was just kind of a little flat. Yeah. And I thought Angelo's character is just, the way he's playing that is very silly. Yeah. It's like the mascot for a pizza restaurant. <laughs> he's like Chef Boyardee. Well, who was a real person? That's right. So I guess he's more like um, Little Caesar. <laughs> Oh, he was real, too. Caesar was real, too. <laughs> the Noid. He's real, too. <laughs> the Noid pushed me off a building. Oh, avoid it. As Blanche said, love is love. 
What the girls fail to realize through their stories and the time at the table is that they are surrounded by love. They've been there for each other, even if they were cranky about it, through all of the bad dates, embarrassing excursions, and depressed conversations. The lesson? Celebrate all of the forms of love you have surrounding you every day, not just romantic love on a required holiday. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get to go to Disney World in Two Road Together. Lincoln Logs. It's, oh. Uh, it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> Denim. Haircuts. Boots and pants and boots and pants. <laughs> when she asks what's wrong, the girls get, oh my gosh, she gets, hello. Marty. <laughs> hey, Doc. Squawk, squawk, squawk. Oh, Marty, let's see what you got down there. Oh, my. (laughs) That made me feel weird. (laughs) I just said time machine, and then you started doing Doc, and then you implied that Doc and Marty were hooking up. I did. (laughs) What year is this? 1929. Oh, okay. You could say the month of Feb. It's not a good suggestion. It's not. Thanks for yelling at me. (laughs) Same to you. The father-daughter doo-doo. So I guess I mean she's stinky. Yep. Or dead. Or dead. What a baby. Oh, you little giggle face. Crappy beer and cheesy sitcoms. Sitcoms. Ew. Yee doggy. Leave my heart handles in my hands. In my hand to get in. Who is that? Hoobastank? Fuel. Same difference. Fuelbastank. Jonathan Frakes uh, acting school. That's right. Of business. Playing the Kirk is Kirk? No. William Shatner. Chris Pine. Cameron. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Playing the Kirk. <laughs> Playing the Kirk is famous comedian Pat McCormick. McCormack. Did you mean to say Kirk? Hey, I haven't meant to say anything I've said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.